We're going to come to the time now in our service. We'll look at a passage from the Bible. We're going to talk about what this means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. Continuing in our series on prayer entitled Ask, Accessing the Father's Heart Through Prayer. So if you have a Bible with you, or you want to grab this brown pew Bible in front of you, would you turn to the book of James, page 854, if you're using this brown pew Bible. Book of James, chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. And when you've found that, would you stand together with me, and we'll pray, ask God's blessing on this time. But let's read together our passage first. James 1, beginning at verse 1. Once again, we're going to look at the bookends of a letter. Let's start together in verse 1. James says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. Flipping over to chapter 5 now, beginning at verse 13. James says, is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah, he was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. This is God's word. You may be seated. Pray for us. Commit this time as well to God. Living God, we come now to your word. We are asking you now to meet with us exactly in the place and in the way that we need to be met this morning. Each person here comes from a different week, from a different life situation, different struggles, different joys, different challenges. Each one of us uh, has a different way we need to be met. And we're trusting, God, that you're going to use your word today, which we believe is living and active, and it's going to be applied to each of our lives just as we need it. That'll bring change, that'll bring encouragement, that'll bring challenge, do all the things that it needs to do. So I ask that you give us open hearts and ears to receive what you want to show us. God, you tell us, you promise us that when you send out your word, it doesn't return to you void. It does accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. God, accomplish that purpose in each one of us today, I ask. And now, as I always pray, living God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. It was the captain of an Atlantic steamship, also a devoted Christian man, who recounted this story of a moment that revolutionized his Christian faith as he sailed off the coast of Newfoundland. He said, 
The last time I sailed these waters was five weeks ago. I had been on the bridge for 24 hours straight when George Mueller of Bristol, England, who was a passenger on board, came to me and said, Captain, I need to tell you that I must be in Quebec on Saturday afternoon. That's impossible, I said. To which he replied, very well, if your ship cannot take me, God will find some other way. For I have never missed an engagement in 47 years. Let's go down to the chart room to pray. The captain says, and I looked at this man of God, and I thought to myself, what lunatic asylum had he escaped from? I never encountered a man like this before. Mr. Mueller, I said, do you realize how dense the fog is? No, he said, but my eye is not on the dense fog, but on the living God who controls every circumstance of my life. And then he says, Mueller knelt down and prayed one of the simplest prayers I've ever heard. When he had finished, I started to pray, but he put his hand on my shoulder and he told me not to pray. He said, first, you do not believe that God will answer. And secondly, I believe that he already has. Consequently, there is no need whatsoever for you to pray about him. <laughs> As I looked at him, he said, Captain, I've known my Lord 57 years, and there's never been a single day I have failed to get an audience with the king. Get up, open the door, you will see that the fog is gone. I got up, Captain says, and indeed the fog was gone. And Saturday afternoon, George Mueller was in Quebec for his meeting. Uh, a story like that, it evokes any number of different reactions. Some of us will hear a story and you're amazed. You're inspired by the faith of someone like George Mueller. Uh, you long to have such a depth of trust and faith in your own prayer life. Uh, I think all of us, uh, probably if not, well, most of us, if not all of us, probably to some degree we're going to identify with the captain, with his fumbling efforts to carry out a kind of ritual of prayer that we're not really sure is actually going to accomplish anything. And some of us would even hate or resent a story like this, both because of its neat and tidy Hollywood ending, as well as because of the fact that it brings to mind maybe a time when we did pray in faith. We prayed with all the faith we had in us, and yet, for reasons left painfully unexplained, heaven was just was closed that day or that week, or that month, or that year, at least to us. And I don't know about you, but if I'm honest with you, I've had each one of those reactions to a story like this in my own life, because I, I desperately long to have this kind of faith like George Mueller had in my own life. There, are, there have been times in my life where I have absolutely gone through a sort of faithless, going through the motions kind of prayer just like that captain and I too have raged against heaven when silence seemed to be the only response to my desperate cries for help. And that's one of the key reasons I want to start out here. Just, just lay it out on the table and just talk about it. Let's just talk about it for what it is. I want to do all this before we get to what Jesus teaches us about how to pray when we get to the Lord's Prayer, which we're going to look about in a few weeks in our series. I want to do that because I believe before we can look at how to pray, we first need to answer the question of what prayer is. Why do we pray at all? And I believe we need to know that 
because what we're going to see here today is going to transform, I believe. It's going to change powerfully the way we think about prayer, the way we look at prayer, because I think we need to understand these things first. We've looked at some of it already in the first two messages, but what we're going to see today, I believe, is really the heart of prayer. It's the heart of it. And when you see it for yourself, I'm praying it's going to revolutionize your own faith and your own prayer, just like it did for that captain sailing off the coast of Newfoundland. That heart of prayer, if you haven't picked up on it already, is faith. Faith. Now, not faith in some sort of broadly defined Oprah Winfrey, a dream is a wish your heart makes kind of sense, but, but deep, specific, targeted faith in a person. Faith in a person. And that's foundational for us to understand because we started out this whole series, me saying that my, my hope for us is that we would grow in our love for prayer. But even in saying that, uh, I want to remind us that more than just love for prayer alone, just this sort of amorphous prayer piece, that we would be growing in our love for the one we're praying to. Why? Because it's not just prayer in general that's powerful and effective. Okay, you're, you're, those of you who are married here, your husband tells you he loves sex. That's not necessarily a good thing if he just means sex in general and not specific sexual intimacy with you in particular. That's different, right? Prayer in general is not necessarily a good thing. But no, prayer specifically and faithfully directed and particularly towards the God who's revealed in his Bible. That's what's powerful and effective. That's what establishes our access to God. That's what accomplishes the things that we bring to Him in prayer, which we are otherwise powerless to accomplish on our own. So in order to establish this heart of prayer among us and to look more deeply into the question of why do we pray at all, I want to look at our passage this morning in just two ways. I want to show you the necessity of faith in prayer, and then we'll look at the context for faithful prayer. The necessity of faith in prayer and the context for faithful prayer. So if you closed your Bibles, please open them again to James chapter 1. Follow along with me now as we look at the heart of prayer. So let's look first of all at the necessity of faith in prayer. The necessity of faith in prayer. Now maybe you would hear a heading like that and you'd think, well, okay, isn't that kind of self-evident? Yeah, of course we need to have Faith when we pray, obviously. Well, really? I'd want to suggest to you that, yeah, while faith is absolutely essential to our prayers and our, our theology and our understanding of the Bible would agree with that statement, I wonder if in practice, faith is very often not at the heart of our prayers. And the reason I say that primarily is because of the way the Bible defines what faith is. It's very often different than how we define faith. One of the clearest places being the beginning of Hebrews chapter 11, often referred to as the hall of faith. There we read the author defining faith like this. He says, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. That's what faith is, being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not yet see. Some of your translations will have that as the conviction of things unseen. A simple example of that would be flying on an airplane. You get on an airplane, I can't see inside those engines on both of the 
wings. Uh, I haven't uh, seen inside the cockpit except for maybe briefly as I walked by to get to my seat. I didn't watch and supervise service mechanics as they ensured that the plane is safe. And yet I trust in them. I put my faith in them, uh, this pilot and this service mechanic, even the engineer of the plane, that this plane will safely get me to where I'm going. At least enough to get on the plane and buckle my seatbelt. And of course, I have no faith whatsoever that my luggage is also going to reach where I get at the same time. That's a different matter. But I have faith in something I haven't seen. That's what faith is, how the Bible defines it. But then considering those elements of faith, being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. When you think of that definition of faith, do you still see faith as the defining characteristic of your prayers? Is that how you present your requests to God? Sure of what you hope for. Certain of what you do not see. That's harder. I mean, clearly it sounds like George Mueller had that kind of faith in his prayers, but if I were to survey all of us this morning, I wonder if he wouldn't be somewhere on the spectrum uh, with everywhere from, I often pray that way with that kind of faith. Sometimes I pray with that kind of faith to, I don't think I've ever prayed with faith like that. And yet as we read in our passage that we just looked at, chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, listen to what James says about when we ask God for things. He says, when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. Or later on, what we read in verse 5, or chapter 5, sorry, where James talks about the prayers of a righteous person being powerful and effective powerful even to heal and raise up sick people. You'll notice there, verse 15, he talks about it's the prayer offered in faith that heals that sick person. Both of those examples, I think, sufficiently illustrating why faith is not just the Bible's suggested addition to our prayers. It's presented as essential to them. And if you want to see what I think James is saying about why doubt, why lack of faith is so devastating to our prayer life, I think we see the answer in verse 8 of chapter 1. Look with me there. After speaking about uh, the lack of faith, the the doubt that robs us of any assurance that we're going to receive anything from God, James describes the result of this doubt. He says, that person is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. Now that term, double-minded, comes from the Greek word dipsikos which refers to someone, quote, who is characterized by a duality of selves. Dipsychos, di, meaning two, psychos, meaning a soul or life, two lives, two persons. So it's a duality of selves that are in opposition to one another, especially resulting in a lack of decisiveness. Okay, so now here's where all those elements that we just talked about come together. Faith in prayer, how we define that faith, and who it is that we're putting our faith in as we pray, because each one of those things has to do with our relationship to the one we're praying to. They all affect that relationship, and a key example of what this double-mindedness could look like that James only hints at in the letter is all the way back in the Old Testament in 1 Kings chapter 18, a story that would have been very familiar to the people, the Jewish readers, the initial readers who would have read James's letter. It's a story where Elijah, the prophet, is pleading with God's people, Israel. Now, I say James only hints at that because 
If you flip over to chapter 5 again, you see in verse 17 and 18, there James is talking about how Elijah prayed and it didn't rain on the land for three and a half years and then he prayed again and it did. The heavens gave their rain. Now a big part of what James is trying to do there is he's taking this guy who would be like a theological superhero to Jewish people. I mean, if they had trading cards in James's day, everyone would have wanted to have an Elijah rookie card. This superhero of the faith, James is saying, look, he, even he, flesh and blood man, just like us, He's just like you and I, which is meant to encourage everyone, all of us, to pray in faith just like he did, to to not create a separate class of super spiritual people. God really listens to their prayers. He's saying, no, 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 Elijah, he was just like us, and look what God did with his faithful prayers. But by bringing up that scene in 1 Kings and in keeping with his theme of praying in faith and avoiding this double-mindedness in our In our ways of acting, James is likely also pointing to what happened after Elijah prayed and the rain returned, namely the confrontation on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. If you grew up in Sunday school, you've heard this story as well. If you're more familiar with the Old Testament, you might remember some of what Elijah said to the people of Israel as he was about to pray for God to send fire on his sacrifice after Uh, The prophets of Baal had tried, and they could not get fire to fall on their sacrifice. I'll read it for us. First of all, 1 Kings 18 and 21. Elijah looks out over the people of Israel, and he says, Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Make up your mind, he's saying. And then his prayer to God before he gives his sacrifice. He says, verse 36, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today you are God in Israel and that I, your servant, have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. So I need you to to see this. Uh, The reason James is warning us against the double-mindedness in our prayers, just like Elijah was warning the people of Israel on Mount Carmel, is because to come to God in prayer with two minds is actually to demonstrate your lack of faith, your complete lack of faith to actually do what you're asking him to do, even as you're asking him to do it. Why? Because you aren't truly putting your faith in God when you do that. You're not coming to him certain of his ability to accomplish what you're asking. And you know that because when you come to him with two minds, it means you're hedging your bets. You're trying to put your faith in God, say, I'm trusting you to do this, but I'm also going to trust this thing over here or this thing, even if that other thing is your own ability to accomplish it. You're putting your faith in two places at once, which is why it's important to point out here, James is not saying, if you're a Christian, you're not allowed to have doubts. There's not going to be times when you have a lack of faith. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is don't allow your doubts or your lack of faith to allow you to say, I can't really trust in God. I need to also trust in this thing or this thing or me. Don't let your doubts lead you to double-mindedness. But we're all going to have doubts and lack of faith sometimes. I mean, think about it. How insulted, how disrespected would you feel if someone came to you pleading with you, listen, I really need your help to do this thing. This is so important. I need this task to be done. I'm trusting you putting my faith in you to do it, and then 10 minutes later, you walked by and heard them on the phone giving the exact same speech to someone else, 
saying, I'm not really sure. God, I really need you to do this. Can you accomplish this task? And it's the same thing they asked you to do. I mean, are they really trusting you? Doesn't the very act of seeking out someone else to help with the very same task demonstrate their lack of trust in you? This is exactly what James has in mind here when he's talking about double-mindedness in a person. And when it comes to our own prayers today, we are no less in danger of this double-mindedness in our prayers of talking about it, coming in a group like this and talking, presenting a faith in God in our prayers that we don't actually have. But then imagining everyone else here is fooled, God's also fooled. He isn't. What James is saying here is this double-mindedness could be the very reason why our prayer life feels so disconnected and why we are not seeing more powerful answers to our prayers. Now, it's incredibly important to just pause at this moment, and I want to put some guardrails around a statement like that. Because on the one hand, there's been a great deal of abuse of this passage through the years and passages like it, where on the one hand, people who are praying for for healing, for deliverance of some kind, have been told by someone that what the Bible says is the reason God didn't heal your child, restore your marriage, save your house, is because you just didn't have enough faith. Sorry. Friends, that is a, a, a wicked, distorted use of this passage. That's not at all what the Bible teaches. Simple example of that, maybe Mark 4. After calming the storm that threatened to drown the disciples, yes, Jesus rebukes his disciples for not having more faith in him, not trusting in him. But he does that after he's already rescued them. He's not standing on the water looking down at them on the bottom of the lake being, too bad you didn't have more faith in me and I could have done something. That's not what happens. He wants us to have more faith, but he's willing to work with us to bring it along. But on the other hand, People have also misused this passage or passages like Mark eleven twenty four. Jesus says, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe you've received it and it will be yours. And we see that praying in faith as a kind of blank check from God. Just name it and claim it where you just rub the lamp the right way and genie Jesus will pop out and give you your three wishes. I hope you know that that is also not what the Bible teaches. It's a mistaken a result of pulling verses out of context and then just trying to apply them where it's most convenient to us. The point at the end of the day is this. Praying in faith is necessary because without it, our prayers are weak. They're ineffective. They are unrighteous, says James. So we must, we must all seek to lift up our prayers to God like those three Hebrew slaves in Daniel 3 when they were facing the fiery furnace, trusting that God can and he will grant us what we are asking him for. To do anything less is to decide for God beforehand that he won't or can't help us. In which case, why are you even bothering to ask? If you already know God's not going to do it, why are you even asking to do it? But neither can we conclude that praying in faith somehow obligates God to have to do what we're asking. God's not looking down from heaven being like, I know that's not what's best for you, but dang it, you prayed in faith. Okay, here you go. He's not doing that either. The reason being because to say, if I just pray in faith, God's got to give it to me, there's no way that that's the case because that would imply a a level of, 
of, of omniscience that we couldn't possibly have as human beings, as finite human beings. We don't know what's always best for us. God does. Which is why the faithful prayer of those same three Hebrew slaves was, our God can deliver us. He will deliver us. And even if he doesn't, we will not bow and serve your gods. So, so praying in faith is, it's a confident trust in God's ability to actually do what we're asking him to do. I believe you will do this, God, while also trusting that he knows better than we do what we need. Or as pastor and author Tim Keller rightly says, God will only give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knows. So that's the necessity of faith in prayer. Last thing I want to look at with you is the context for faithful prayer. The context for faithful prayer. And I know uh, those of you who have been here a while, I I talk about context a fair bit. It's it's not my hobby horse, but I talk about it a lot because I think it's really important. And it's worth repeating in this context because, as is almost always the case, context informs the meaning of a text. It informs, it sets up the framework on which we understand what a text means, which is why whenever you're studying a particular verse in the Bible, maybe you have a particular verse that you love so much and you want to memorize, because I want to use that verse, call it to mind whenever I need, that's a great thing. What I would encourage you to do is instead of just Google searching that verse, look it up in the Bible and look at the context around it and make sure that that verse still means what you thought it meant before after you read it in context. This is going to keep you from being that guy with the Philippians 4.13 t-shirt. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, which shows a guy uh, bench pressing 400 pounds on the front of it. In its context, what that verse is talking about is Peter, or sorry, Paul being content, saying I, am, I can be content in whatever circumstances I find myself in. That's what he's really talking about. It's not talking about Paul being able to bench a certain amount of weight, being able to hold on long enough until he reaches the next bathroom stop. That's not what it is. Context tells us that what he's actually talking about. And in chapter 1 of our passage here today, the context for everything James is praying about in faith, he's saying about praying in faith, keeping ourselves from double-mindedness, is trials and suffering. That's the context which he presents this teaching and almost the exact same thing in chapter 5. Aside from the happiness piece, which has its own prayer and faith that's needed, he lists the contexts of trouble. Is anyone in trouble? Is anyone sick? These are some of the other contexts where we had to pray in faith like this. If you look at chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, this is one of the more well-known parts of the letter of James, where he tells us, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, Because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. So it's within this context then, when James comes to verse 5 and begins to teach about how we should go about asking God for things, he tells us the thing we should ask God for in the context of trials and suffering is wisdom. He says you should ask for wisdom and believe that God's going to give it to us. And even just on the surface, that already is hugely helpful to us, whether we have suffered, whether you're suffering right now, or for when you will suffer in the future. Because what James just did there, by telling us the thing we need most from God in the context of suffering and trials is wisdom, what he just said to all of us is that it's okay. He gave us the freedom to know that it's okay if you don't understand what God's doing. 
He gave us the freedom. He's saying, it's okay. There's not something wrong with you. If you're going through a trial and it's really hard and you don't know what God's up to, it's okay. You need wisdom to understand what he's, what he's doing, and it only comes from him. You won't understand on your own, in your own thinking, so ask him for wisdom. The question I want us to consider for our own lives today and our own praying in faith is, why does James embed this teaching on praying in faith in the context of talking about trials and suffering to begin with? Why does he do that? Well, I think I see two reasons here. First of all, because trials and suffering are the most common areas, the most common contexts where the majority of us eventually become much more active in our prayer lives. Have you ever noticed how the same person who's just like, well, you know, prayer, it's, I guess it's okay. Or maybe they would say, I'm not that strong in my prayer. I, I don't know how to pray at all. Somehow it seems to become an overnight prayer sensation when they begin to face something that over time they realize, I can't fix this on my own. All of a sudden, you know, the, you know cancer diagnosis, marriage falling apart, laid apart, laid off from my job. All of a sudden they're going from zero to hero in their prayer life. And that's, that's a good thing. We should let the difficult circumstances uh, that we face in life drive our gaze upwards to God instead of around us or inward on ourselves. That, that's part of the intent. That's part of God's intent of suffering and trials is to cause us to look to Him for the help that only He can give. Second reason I think He does that is because trial and suffering are also the most common context where our faith is tried and where our faith is most often found wanting particularly when we've prayed for something and God doesn't come through when or how we asked him to do it. Which, hear me, is precisely why James' instruction to those who find themselves in this context is to ask for wisdom. Why? Because suffering in trials messes with your head. It messes with your thinking, causes you to act brashly, to think irrationally, because in those hard moments, when, when the heat is at its most intense, sometimes all you care about in that moment is how do I get out of here now? I'm going to go through that door. This, I'm going to go through that door of another relationship, that door of alcohol, drugs, whatever it is, I'm going to go through it, even if I know it's harmful because I need to get out of here right now. We're not, we're not thinking properly. We're not really rationally processing this. Beyond that, the hard reality is that even for believers in Jesus, prayer is often not the very first thing we go to when we're in over our head. It's very often the very last thing we go to once every other option we've tried has failed. I can't understand how a believer in Jesus could ever say, well, I've tried everything else that I could think of and it hasn't worked. I guess all that's left to do is pray. No. No. That, that, that's the epitome of double-minded behavior. And at that point, are your prayers really in faith anymore at all, or are they just kind of desperate graspings for anything? The problem is when we do that, yes, God can and he does often still rescue us. He is a faithful God to his children. But what we do when that happens is we take a context like suffering and trials, which God intends to strengthen our faith, and it now becomes the context where our faith is actually damaged and weakened. Or to put it another way, the gymnasium that was intended to strengthen our faith even more now becomes a car wreck that we need weeks and months to recover from. 
think that's the exact reason uh, why Jesus kept waking up his disciples, calling them to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew they were about to face the trial of their lives. Their faith was going to be tested to the breaking point. Remember Jesus' word to Simon, to Peter in Luke 22, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you that he might sift all of you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. Which means that a part of the wisdom James is calling us to ask for in verse 5 is the wisdom to come to God in prayer first. Make that the, the first response when even you have the wind of a trial or suffering. Go to prayer first. Make that your first response, not what you go to once you've exhausted all other earthly options and there's nowhere left to turn. But with all of that said, here's how I want to close this morning. Because what I said as we began this whole series was that I wanted us, by God's grace, to be inspired to a deeper, more consistent practice of prayer. That's my whole goal and aim for this series, that we would be inspired to pray more. And while we've talked about some good challenges to our prayer life, I want to leave us with something that I pray will inspire, will encourage us both to love prayer more as well as to love the God that we pray to more. And the way I want to do that is I want to just come full circle. Let's come back to that story we began with George Mueller on that steamship traveling to Quebec. Because my hope is at least a part of us, maybe like me, your response when you heard that story was, wow, wouldn't wouldn't that be amazing if I could have faith like that guy? And maybe your response was, I would... I would pray way more if I thought God would answer in these powerful ways like that when I prayed. And I believe if that's even your desire to hope that that would be true of you, you're already halfway there to achieving it. Why? Because as we said when we began this whole series, Thomas Cranmer, who said, what the heart loves, the will chooses and the mind justifies. If you love, if you desire to have deeper faith, in your prayer, if you desire to connect more deeply with God in your prayer, your will and your heart are going to choose to lead you in those ways because you love that. It's your desire and your hope. You're going to move towards it. So how do we get there? How, how do we achieve this maturity of faith which believes God so strongly for the things that we ask for and sees God accomplish these mighty works? Well, the answer, I believe, is in verses 3 and 4 of our passage, chapter 1. Look with me there. James says, because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. A maturity and a completeness in our faith comes as a result of persevering prayer. Faithfulness and trust in God, which means very simply, the way we develop a greater faith in our prayer life, like George Mueller, is to persevere in trials and suffering and allow, our, allow those things to grow our faith rather than to crush them. And I think we do that by recalling God's faithfulness on the other side of those trials. Recalling His faithfulness each time He carries us through one of those difficult circumstances. How do we do that? Well, if you read the historical accounts, the biographies of a guy like George Mueller, amazing things that God accomplished through this man. You'll see a man who suffered greatly, 
who experienced and endured many trials, hardships, challenges, but through it all, submitted each trial and need to God in prayer, and over time, grew in his confident trust in his God and his Savior, and his faith, as his faith was tested, and he saw God time and time again display his limitless ability to respond in miraculous ways. That, that's the testimony of someone like George Mueller, why he could say to that captain, what was it? I've known my Lord 57 years. There's never been a single day I failed to get an audience with the king. That's a man who has experienced over time the faithfulness of his God, and he's calling it to mind. He's able to remember it and think of it. Which means the answer to the question, how can I have confident faith in my own prayers like George Mueller had? See God do amazing stuff through me is, I believe, let perseverance finish its work in you so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And as God comes through in these ways from the smallest to the greatest, develop a plan, develop a way of calling those things to mind again. Maybe that's a friend or a spouse. Whenever we've gone through some difficult circumstance, or very often I'll say to my wife, I'll say, Would you please remind me of this? Remind me of this the next time we're in a situation like this because I'm going to forget. I'm going to forget the amazing way God came through and I need you to say, don't forget what he did because that's going to give me confident faith now to trust him for this next thing. And over time, our faith is strengthened. Maybe for you, that's a prayer journal where you begin to write out, these are the things I'm praying for and then as you see God's answers, you you list them. Your your list, I promise you, is going to get longer and longer, and then refer to it, come back to it often. Demonstrations of God's faithfulness is going to build your confidence over time to pray like George Mueller, to say, I believe God already has answered my prayer, and trust you're going to come out and the fog is gone. Of course, always trusting. God knows what we need best. We don't command God to do what we're asking, but our confident trust in Him to do it, to pray in faith like this, and not fall off into that double-mindedness is going to be grown as we recall his faithfulness again and again. But listen, it's not an afternoon course. It's not an app you can download and and just have it like that. It's a lifetime of persevering trust. Trusting in the midst of trials and suffering that eventually will lead to this hopeful desire of your heart becoming a reality. To the place where maybe one day you might even have someone look at your life And be able to say, I wish I had faith in prayer like that person. I wish I could see God accomplish things in my prayer life like that person. What are you asking God for right now? What are you trusting him for and you're struggling to trust him for? Maybe you've been praying for a long time. And you haven't had an answer. That's not the answer you hoped it would be. James's call to us today is to pray in faith, trusting that God can and will accomplish what you're asking him, but believing that he knows what you need best. He is a good father. And as we do that over time, I believe our confidence and our trust in God will grow. We'll be able to pray in faith just like this. Let's pray to him now.